Good morning. You are listening to KPOO San Francisco 89.5 and on the World Wide Web at KPOO.com. This is Prison Focus Radio. Slavery is back. In fact, it was never abolished. The 13th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution abolished slavery, except in prison. At the current rate of incarceration, by the year 2010, the majority of all African-American men between 18 and 40 will be in prison. The state as their captor. It's going to take people who are willing to fight, not people who want to negotiate with the enemy. people. 
This is New Bay here on Prison Focus Radio on KPOO San Francisco. I want to thank you for joining me here this morning. Our show today is going to spend much of the hour uh, with the focus on Russell Maroon Schultz. As you know, um, Russell Schultz passed on to the ancestors uh, just a few days ago. And so there is there is grief and and just a lot of outpouring of love and support for him, his family, the impact that he has made in our lives. Um, so we are going to be actually hearing an interview um, uh, from him or uh, of him. And we'll be hearing also from Mumia Abu-Jamal, um, who's a part of this interview and part of this um, audio that I found on, on YouTube. And I'll be reading letters as well. Um, but for any of you that do not know Russell Maroon Schultz, um, I hope you will spend some time. You can find out more about him, of course, by um, um, going to the San Francisco Bayview National Black Newspaper um, and Abolitionist Law Center, and of course, good old Googling. But he is um, a tremendous human being uh, that... Um, again, has made a, a, a huge impact on all of our lives, especially those of us that are abolitionists, um, prison human rights activists, and uh, supporters of political prisoners, and, and of course, the Black Panther Party. So, all right, um, without taking any more time, because we need as much as we can uh, to, get to, uh, to get through this show, um, let's get to it. Here we go. All right. Um, I'm going to start with a letter that was sent to us by Troy T. Thomas, also known as Asar Imhotep Amen, PhD. And he sent a couple of post-its along with this letter. And the first one is Dear Sister Nube Hotep, here is my latest essay for your consideration to publish. Feel free to edit it down, as I realize it's a little long. It's an angry critique, but it's the God's honest truth that our folks need to read. Hotep, Bro Asar. And the other post-it says, Brother Asar is an African-centered theorist who is thoroughly committed to the African-centered imperative, one that is grounded in the creation and utilization of culturally specific frameworks in order to understand and create solutions for humanity, building for eternity. All right, and this letter came with a, a letterhead, Pan-African Strategy and Policy Research Group. And the title is, What Working Poor Black Folks Need to Realize as We Protest for Better Conditions in America, by Asar Imhotep Amen, PhD. A View from the Bridge, Revelation from Ancestor Derek Bell. Black people will never gain full equality in this country. Even those Herculean efforts we hail as successful will produce no more than temporary peaks of progress, short-lived victories that slide into irrelevance as racial patterns adapt in ways that maintain white dominance. This is a hard-to-accept fact that all history verifies. We must acknowledge it and move on to adopt policies based on what I call racial realism. 
This mindset or philosophy requires us to acknowledge the permanence of our subordinate status. That acknowledgement enables us to avoid despair and frees us to imagine and implement racial strategies that can bring fulfillment and even triumph. Accepting racial realism means that our philosophy, our mindset, must look upon reality anew. As African-descended people, we are inevitably confronted with ourselves in a Black reality. So as Blacks, we must create and embrace new political strategies that focus on liberation, not incremental progress. Black intellectual efforts must be weighed against its potential for freedom and the certainty of Black people's subjugation and death. Black social political theory must be guided by the harsh realities of anti-Black racism, not the idle faith of a never dawning tomorrow. Struggle is not enough. As Franz Fanon reminds us, challenging the colonial world is not a rational confrontation of viewpoints. It is not a discourse on the universal, but the impassioned claim by the colonized that their world is fundamentally different. In other words, it is now clear we are facing an implacable enemy whose avowed objective is world domination by whatever means and at whatever cost. There are no rules in such a game. Up to this time, acceptable long-standing American concepts of fair play must be reconsidered. We must develop effective methods to subvert, sabotage, and destroy our enemies by more clever, more sophisticated, and more effective methods than those used against us, i.e., we must disrupt, dismantle, and defeat racism, white supremacy, at all cost. Liberation is a question of consciousness. Decoding the games of liberals, conservatives. These are code words for groups of white supremacists who have developed a cultivated technique for dealing with black people. The word liberal is associated with many good things. It indicates tolerance, open-mindedness, free thinking, open-handedness, generosity, and big-heartedness. The word alone is powerful enough to attract individuals. Who wouldn't want to belong to a group of people that have these qualities? The word liberal also has a distinct political meaning. In political rhetoric, it is considered left-wing. The uniting of political philosophies to wings brings about an immediate perceptual association with birds of flying. One of the cornerstone symbols of white domination is the big bird called the eagle. The eagle is a big-eyed, smart predator that surveys the landscape and then calmly waits out its prey. The intended prey is lulled into thinking that the eagle is not integrated or interested and is harmless. However, that is part of its game of deception. The eagle has every intention of attacking its target. The prey will never know when and where the eagle will strike. The same eagle has both a left wing and a right wing. Both wings are part of a predatory creature that seeks to devour its victim. The left wing, or liberals, have done much to derail, mislead, and deceive black people. This assessment is based on the history of white liberalism and its relationship to black people. Liberals have never pushed for the dismantlement of the worldwide system of white domination. At best, the efforts have produced a piecemeal level of set-asides that black people are supposed to be grateful for and contented with. The liberals want to control black people in a less harsh, rigid, and yet far more deceptive manner. This is part of the yo-yo effect, or bouncing back and forth between the confusion of the left wing and the right wing, while in reality, both sides are the white wing. 
One side points a finger at the other to explain why the degrading social and economic conditions of black people have not changed. The left blames the right, and the right blames the left. Each side recruits pathetic black spokespersons to spout the party line in return for money and fame. On the surface, it appears that the liberals and conservatives are hostile enemies. This is a good game. In the final analysis, they play the same game of containment and control. And liberal versus conservative con game never allows black people to be certain about the validity or the existence of racism, white supremacy. The liberal does more to confuse black people than the conservative. The liberal is a real magician. He blurs the image of the white supremacist. With a liberal around, it's hard to see the antics of the racist in clear focus. His words, gestures, and public appearances are acts of very great deception. He wants diversity and to have a few rich black people at the pool party. He will even allow or encourage a black male to date or to marry one of his daughters. However, this behavior has nothing to do with the attainment of real power. The right wing will at least indicate that they are for maintaining the existing structure of racial domination. The liberal will mislead and purposely delude black people into believing they are against the system. The inconsistency of the left and the right messages are painful and confusing. The one consistent dynamic is that the pattern of domination does not change. Addressing the white elephant in the room. The European American community's drive to disguise and conceal their culpability and guilt in the destruction and oppression of Africans through their collective societal institutional arms requires American society, both whites and its black victims as well, to operate in a kind of collective psychosis. Everyone appears to operate in a blatant denial of the true history of Africans in America with three Ks and the continuing contemporary legacy of that history, which allows whites to feel secure and positive about themselves and to project themselves to the world as the apex, standard of civility and high culture, with the implied beneficial psychological, economic, political, spiritual, etc. outcomes for everyone. Thus, maintenance of the psychological comfort level of European supremacy in American society requires, or demands in fact, this kind of collective denial or psychotic behavior and functioning among Africans in virtually every aspect of American life. Consequently, the black race in America is literally forced to, and is reinforced, rewarded, applauded, etc., for functioning in a state of collective mass psychosis. Within this context, um, Africans in America, with three Ks, are reinforced for suppressing and or denying their true racial cultural identity and history, i.e. their integrity as human beings, for remaining ignorant of their true history and culture in in the world, and for internalizing as much as possible a Eurocentric consciousness. This is, in my view, the ultimate statement of psychological cultural oppression, which is illustrated by the African psychological predicament in America and throughout the world. In fact, I think the ancestor Dr. Chancellor Williams, author of The Destruction of Black Civilization, said it best when he said, and I quote, the whites are the implacable foe, the traditional and everlasting enemy of the blacks. The necessary re-education of blacks and a possible solution of racial crisis can begin, strangely enough, only when blacks fully realize this central fact in their lives. The white man is their bitter enemy. 
for this is not the ranting of wild-eyed militancy, but the calm and unmistakable verdict of several thousand years of documented history. So I find it quite inconceivable that the white man dares to think of himself civilized given his long psychopathic history throughout the world, his legitimate theft of the wealth, and legitimate is in quotes, theft of the wealth and resources of others now exempts him from the need to commit crimes in the street, to look the people he robs, rapes, and kills directly in their eyes as did his pioneering and colonizing fathers. With one stroke of the pen, he mugs millions upon millions and desecrates the whole of the earth. Because it is a pen he wields, rather than a pistol to the temple or a knife to the throat, he deludes himself by thinking himself good, decent, and law-abiding. In other words, their good and decency are but psychopathic illusions created by a repressive denial of the truth. The white American and the worldwide European ruling classes in general refuse to accept and repent of their historical and contemporary theft of the lands, resources, and the taking of lives of their own and other peoples. Their enslavement, serfdom, and peonage of their own and African peoples. Their colonization and rapacious exploitation of virtually all nine white peoples. Their eradication of whole ethno-cultural groups their mass murder of hundreds of millions of persons, their scandalization and assassination of the character of African peoples, their destruction of many of the earth's streams, rivers, lakes, seas, and oceans, ecocide, the raping and wasting of its natural treasures, their loosening, or loose, their loosening of incurable diseases, on, I would say it's loosing, their loosing of incurable diseases on vulnerable populations, the development and use of weapons of mass destruction, their assassination of national leaders, overthrow of the duly elected governments and other intrigues against legitimate organizations, their warmongering and dissemination of murderous arms among nations for profit and political advantage, their addicting of whole populations to self-destructive habits, appetites, and drugs, their falsification of the consciousness of the earth's peoples and numerous other heinous crimes against man and nature. Because of their need to deny their long criminal history and contemporaneous criminality, their refusal to recognize that they pose the gravest danger to every type of life on earth and their need to divert theirs and the world's attention away from the facts listed above, the white American and European communities must compulsively project the alleged criminal activities onto the black and brown community as representing the greatest danger to American society and European civilization. Now we fully understand why the black male body is seen as inherently threatening, just by virtue of its very existence, both in public spaces as well as in the public imagination. In addition, we also fully understand why it is that Europeans see Africans as such an existential threat. It's because the collective African consciousness is feared by Europeans whose survival depends on the control of the African psyche. Indeed, Racism, white supremacy, is the witchcraft of the 21st century. It should be carefully noted that no matter how economically or socially distant the European military, political, economic elite are from the dispossessed white masses, they are one. The European elite still represent and share a joint supremacist, exploitative, 
dominative nationalist agenda, agenda for and with the European masses. They form one racial cultural nation. If push comes to shove, politicians are no more without their constituency than businessmen are without their consumers. And in a situation where politicians and businessmen are the same, constituency and consumer are the same. Therefore, European politicians, businessmen, having the European masses as their constituency consumers cannot truly risk alienating them in a game of racial politics, especially Black Lives Matter, George Floyd protests, because if they know nothing else, they know that in a, in a political economic Politico-economic system grounded in white supremacy, the European masses' loyalty is first and foremost to their whiteness, as world history more than verifies for the past 5,000 plus years. Unless the European elite can make the non-European masses as blindly loyal to them as the European masses are, even though for different political reasons, they cannot take the chance of blatantly forsaking the European masses, but so far in extending support which in the end benefits them, to the causes of non-European masses. This is especially true if those causes undermine the resources the European masses require for basic survival. Said another way, if it arises at some point in the future that whites have to make a decision between feeding their children and black children, irrespective of what kinds of laws are on the books, they are going to feed theirs and starve ours. Therefore, race precedes class in the European mind. Whether that European mind is dispossessed, poor white trash, or elite. This we should remain cognizant, no matter how doggedly radical, liberal, and progressive Europeans work to convince us that we're in the same class boat with them, because nature aptly reminds us that every parasite requires a host. Whatever the reason, whatever the source, consistently, historically, Europeans have demonstrated that they understand that they are our enemy, whether we want to see their hatred for what it is or not. Final truths that we must face as a people. In all of our brilliant African-centered analysis of the origin and continuity of the Europeans' pathological level of racism, white supremacy, what makes us believe white people will change? because we've come to clearly recognize that all of their humanizing change has come in form and not content. So why would it be in any way productive for us to envision their politicized claim to humanity as even a most trivial concern in our search for black people's social, economic, and political empowerment? Because at the end of the day, we cannot analyze the enemy as an historical, incurable psychopath and then create a future where we are one. Given historical and contemporary fact that the universe of tomorrow will in all probability be imbued with African optimism does not necessarily speak well of a future African presence. In the final analysis, we must seriously ask, does not history, his story, deny the possibility of really civilizing and humanizing those who by nature are psychopaths? That the majority of Africans' focus is invariably on helping Europeans change into something they are not should tell us something. These qualifications for racist thought and behavior again and again, and despite evidence to the contrary, make their return of love to us a living possibility. The mentally oppressed will find a way, even in the light of truth, to gain the approval of those they love to fear, even if it means the blatant denial of their birthright and disrespect of their ancestors. 
If only we had the time to get them to see the error in their ways, their short-sighted vision of our enemy. If only we had the time, which we do not. They will just have to become courageous enough to follow what they see African warriors do on their own or lose their place. Indeed, history does not forgive those who lose their way. It is undeniable that black people have been engaged in a protracted struggle against the forces of racism, white supremacy for more than 5,000 years plus. That struggle has been unrelenting despite the brief periods of apparent progress and the passage of laws that gave the illusion of progress in race matters. A cursory examination of American world history quickly reveals that slavery, colonialism, Jim Crow, segregation, discrimination, miseducation, integration, gentrification, the war on drugs, and the new Jim Crow are variations of the same state-sanctioned terrorism meted out by white against blacks to maintain the system of white domination. African-centered education is the key to our collective liberation. African-centered education recognizes that the whole of human life is a political system and therefore it interprets its materials politically. It is political, economic, and military action that must change our circumstances as a people. If those things are not applied in the context of our education, then we are being educated to be servants, educated servants. Because it is the intention of Europeans that black people throughout the world never escape their conditions of servitude. A higher education means that we will just be educated servants, nothing more, nothing less. Again, Africans throughout the world must deeply understand that racism, white supremacy, is an integral, permanent, and indestructible component of this pathological society, and the idea of racial equality is fundamentally bankrupt. For all of these reasons outlined in this essay and much more, white people should never assume they know everything we know about them. In honor of the ancestors. Our deepest fear is not that we are inferior. Our deepest fear is that we are powerful beyond measure. It is our divinity, not our so-called humanness, that most frightens us. We ask, who are we to be intelligent, wise, conscious, African-centered? Actually, who are we not to be? We are a manifestation of the vibrations of Muntu and the ancestors. Our playing small does not serve our African nation well. There is nothing enlightened about cowering so that other people, especially Europeans, won't feel insecure around us. We are meant to shine as the gods do. We were born to manifest the glory of Muntu and the ancestors. It's not just in some of us. It's in all of us. And as we let our light shine, we unconsciously give all of humanity permission to do the same. As we are liberated from our fear and ignorance of self, our presence automatically liberates others. Final thoughts. The solution to the sickness of racism, white supremacy, is the awakening of the consciousness of African people to the divinity within. You cannot successfully oppress a consciously historical people. Once a people know who they are, they will always know what to do about their condition. Dr. John Henrique Clark. May you find peace within the infinite spaciousness of your sacred conscious. Brother Asar Imhotep Amen, Ph.D. Feel free to write me at Troy T. Thomas, H. 01001, E3B-136-UP. 
also known, or a.k.a. Asar Imhotep Amen Ph.D., CHCF, P.O. Box 213040, Stockton, California, 95213. And now Russell Maroon Schultz speaks. That suggests that, you know, these are 
Jamal. This is Ramsey Clark. Greatest gulag in the world by far. More than a million of our young men, overwhelmingly our young men, rounded up as a means of social control, pure and simple. And all that talent and energy and imagination that ought to be home with us, destroyed and brutalized. It doesn't have to happen. We had a moratorium on prisons in the 60s. We have to have a moratorium on new prisons now and a reduction of existing prisons. We have seen a quadrupling, a near quintupling of the prison population in the last 20 years since the Attica Prison Rebellion, which was a protest against overcrowding. And we had 12,500 prisoners in the New York State system. We now have 65,000. And the state hadn't even grown. And we're calling for more. God help us end that madness. Let me ask you something, uh, Russell. You, you've, been, you've been in prison how long now? Uh, 24 plus years. 24 plus years. That's correct. And since the time you've been in uh, 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 prison, uh, have you noted a, a, a decided shift in, first of all, the, um, the, the, the inmate population and their consciousness? And, 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 and the way that the Department of Correction goes about um, uh, administering the prison system. And well, the primary shift that I've noticed since I've been in the prison is the overwhelming numbers of prisoners who've come in the system. Presently, just within the state system, not counting the local systems, presently within the state system, they got over 30,000 prisoners. Yes. When I first came here, there was less than 4,000 prisoners in this system. In Pennsylvania. In Pennsylvania, it was less. I got that wrong. It was less than 5,000 prisoners within the Pennsylvania system. Now it's over 30,000 prisoners. That's the major change. Um, the makeup of the prisons has always essentially been the same in this state, which is roughly 60 or more percent black, possibly 5 or more percent Hispanic, and then the rest, you know, were white. 
So that makeup is basically the same. However, this large influx of prisoners have radically changed how the prison system has been handled. When I first come to prison within this system here, the prison system was lock us up, but basically the treatment was relatively, although they hold us captive, you could at least get the things that you need. Nowadays, or at least within the last eight or nine years, because that's when the that's when the large influx begin to come in. Now you can't even get clothing you need. About all you can get nowadays is enough to eat. What? Actually, this is the premier control unit for the whole state. And you know, the population? All together is 386. You know these uh, maxi maxi cells. But out of 386 men, you will probably never see but 24 men that send on your unit in addition to the officers as well as maybe two workers. You know, they may come from another unit. That's about it. I've been here a little over a year and a half. And within that time, I've seen Brother Mamiya twice. And I've been able to highlight him and say, how you doing, once within that time. And at one time, we were in the same identical building for six months. And he was telling me. And that was... And you could be in the same say. building, won't even know somebody's there, yeah. yeah. So that's the whole idea about, you know, how they're making these new control units. It's to, come, come, you know, completely cut you off as much as possible from all the, you know, outside stimuli that you can. Also within this unit, you know, we're not allowed to uh, have access to... Uh, not allowed, you know, we have to read the... You, you never permitted books? No, we're permitted access to books within their library. They provide a library, which is everything from the boy who invented popcorn or bubblegum or up to some other crap, some system crap that they want you to read. Oh, wait, 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 wait. You can't order books from the publisher or... No, you're not. You can order what you want, but when it comes, it goes into your property to be given to you when you're released. And in the case of a person like me, I've been told over and over again in writing that I will never, any VDR, be released from this unit. And of course, as you know... So you say all the books that you're sending put in your property and you never get to read them? No, you're never allowed the books except from approval from their board, which is the Program Review Committee. Okay, it's so they say the decision book was sent to you. Right. From the publisher. It goes right. to the Program Review Committee. It goes to the Program Let's Review Committee. Let's assume that they are okay. Right. Then you can read it. Then you can read it. Okay, so you can have it in your cell. You would have it in your cell in exchange for another book. Another book. So you're permitted, how many books in your cell? Five? No, what you're permitted, you're permitted, you're permitted the necessary legal books for cases that you're preparing, as well as any one religious book. Uh, outside of that, your leisure reading material, something that's sent from somebody on any given topic. You're only allowed it if the program review committee approves it. So as it stands right now, and I've been here a year and a half, and I've been given access to being able to exchange two books on a one-for-one -one basis. And this is because I haven't had any type of group infraction since 1989. So you can imagine what I would have to do, you know, uh, to work myself into, you know, some more access to... Uh, so, so therefore, you're reading, your ability to read um, different diverse material is 
is is is uh, is restricted at best. Yes, it has to come through the PRC. I'll give you an example. Uh, about six months ago, my daughter had me send a dissertation that was by uh, a Kim Holder, which is a graduate student. He got a PhD on this dissertation. It was on the history of the Black Panther Party. Yeah, I see it. And uh, the Program Review Committee reviewed it and refused to let me have access to it. No reason, because they don't have to give a reason, because all of this is discretionary. And they make a determination on what you should read and shouldn't read. They make a determination on everything. They is there a do. criteria they're supposed to utilize? In a there is a criteria, but the criteria is so broad that it gives them wide latitude to determine everything within your life except a limited number of things. And amongst those limited number of things, of course, they have to provide for your safety. They can't kill you. They can't allow anybody else to outright kill you except in a limited number of reasons, such as in the case of the state, or to prevent you from, you know, bringing deadly harm to somebody else. What has the pretext been for putting you in isolation? Is that I'm just too much of a danger to the overall system. Well, I mean, that's vague. Aren't all prisoners a danger to the system? Well, in my case in particular, I've escaped more than once, and I've attempted to escape more than once. Oh, I so see. they always use the escape. Oh, I see. You, you have one of them Kutu Kente complexes. I absolutely have a Kutu Kente. My name is Maroon. I'm, I'm not about staying in a, you know, in a depressing situation. You're about staying Hell no. You know, anybody who sits up in prison and don't try to go. I know they, we were trying to sit you down just now. I said you yeah, said you're more comfortable staying. That's not the question. They don't want they, they, they must don't know what them guns and guards and, and fences and wire wire and all that crap is for. Which, which, I might add to that, which is not really extraordinary, you know, because if, 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 if my situation was so extraordinary, not saying that, you know, uh, I'm not in a category, you know, that's outside of the normal category, because they don't have that many people within this whole system who escape successfully, you know, on more than one occasion. However, the prison systems were built specifically to keep people here by force. Yeah. So that is uh, that is actually a part of the overall dynamic. And that, 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 this was a facility that they built for guys like me because I'm amongst that small percentage and most of that percentage who whether they are escape risk or they are their other risk that ordinarily that they feel as though that they cannot allow within the general populations within the other prisons because they weren't secure enough, they built this prison specifically for that, according to their own words and their documents and whatnot. And I was sitting here, in fact, I was told as far back as 1991, I was told at that time I was in isolation also. And I was in the courts and otherwise, asking why with my behavior adjustment, which was no infractions, period. Because other than wanting to go home, I'm about a prison. You know, because I don't see any reason to be involved in any type of infraction with anybody except for my own safety or whatever, something of that nature. So, in light of the fact that I was a model prisoner, I wanted to know, the courts wanted to know, my relatives wanted to know, people was concerned about me wanted to know, how come I could not be released from the isolation? And I was told each time that each institution, that there was no institution in the whole state system that they felt within their judgment that would be safe for me, but they was building a new institution, State Correctional Institution in Grady. 
And once this place was built shortly afterwards, I came here in January 95, with the understanding that I would be released, assuming that I maintained my good, you know, behavior record. Have you applied to be released to General Tijunia? I've applied to be released to General Proclamation each of my 30-day reviews. They review me every 30 days. And each 30-day review that I attend, and I attend most of them, I ask the same thing for the record. They allow me to be released. However, on my first review that I came here, I asked to be released. And I was told in no uncertain terms that I would never be released here. At which time I brought up. Who told you that? I was told that by the Deputy Warden Barnett. He's the deputy warden of operations or something? Yeah, he's the deputy warden of operations. He's mainly the top security man outside of the superintendent or the warden. Do you, is, is that unusual? Um, that an inmate, that a, that a prisoner is told that they would never be released despite the fact that the, 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 the system, the Department of Corrections has a policy requiring objective review of, of, of the uh, inmate status. And, but he's told from the onset that this is basically a formality and he's never going to be released. Is that, is that unusual? Are there other inmates that are told that? Well, it's not unusual to me because I've heard a little bit of everything since I've been in prison. But for purposes of the law, it's highly unusual. Because even that is outside of the wide parameters that they're given by all the laws and, the, and, and all the regulations that I'm familiar with. That well, there's no such thing as... Uh, a forever thing with any type of, uh, in any status, within the correctional system. Well, you know, people have the impression that in the United States that the prison system is run based on some type of legal criteria that the uh, employees of the prison system are constrained by rules, that there's regulations that inmates must follow, and that if inmates follow the necessary rules, they're afforded certain privileges and certain concessions. If they don't, they're punished. And you're, what you're saying, and what we hear you, what we hear you saying, is that in effect, except for the escape attempts that you have, which all prisons are designed to thwart, uh, and that's the nature of prisons to thwart escape attempts, that aside from that, you've been a model prisoner, but yet here you are in the maximum control unit within a maxi maxi prison, handcuffed in a non-contact cage, uh, based on your history in this system and not on your actual conduct? Is that what you're saying? That's absolutely the case. Do you think that's connected to uh, to your politics and to why you came to prison for the Well, not only is it connected to my politics, but it goes a little beyond that. Uh, in fact, uh, I have been in the prisons with the top administrators of this prison when they weren't top administrators. In other words, I've seen them come up through the ranks because I've been here as long as most of them, you know, and more than, as long as any of them, more than most of them. Let's just put it that way. And formerly, I've had contact with some of these top administrators. And in fact, I've had literally, bodily, you know, uh, contact with some of these administrations. In fact, I escaped from one penitentiary, and one of the administrators, uh, I was holding him hostage for a while. I didn't do any harm to him. I just didn't want him to get in the way of my attempt to leave the institution. The status of your case now, uh, you've been in jail um, uh, over two and a half decades. Uh, what is the status of your case now? The status of my case is that I am serving 
two life sentences, uh, 19 and a half to 38 years, five to 10, one to two, and three and a half to seven. And all of these are running consecutive, which means that I have to finish each, each sentence before I will begin another one. In Pennsylvania, life is natural life. There's no years on life. The only way you can get rid of a life sentence within Pennsylvania, you have to be commuted. You have to get a commutation that's got to be signed directly from the government. Uh, since I've been in this uh, system in this time, uh, outside of some juvenile years where I was in juvenile institutions, um, the commutations that were given out does not amount to my knowledge to 100 prisoners. And there are thousands and thousands and thousands of lifers over this 20-some years. So the commutation as a general rule is not really something that a life prisoner can look forward to. I don't know what the future holds. Because as I said, when I first come to prison, it was only 5,000 prisoners. And it was a relative smaller percentage of lifers then. Now there's thousands and thousands of lifers because there's thousands of more prisoners. So I don't know whether or not that, you know, these prisoners will be offered commutation. And as far as myself, I doubt very seriously whether I have any type of chance for any type of commutation from this governor who happens to be one of those supposedly tough-on-crime political governors or any other governor for the simple reason that my case originally is in relationship to the killing of a Philadelphia policeman. And it's highly unlikely in my way of thinking that they would release anybody on commutation who has got anything to do, you know, with the killing of, of the laws. So my two lives and my other uh, years that I got, uh, although I constantly fight, and I've been fighting them 20-some years, uh, I doubt very seriously whether there's any possibility of me ever leaving this system through the court system. Well, you know, now, today, the issue of police brutality and, uh, and the treatment of, uh, of national minorities by the police uh, are once again in the news and it's becoming an issue. Uh, like you said, you were convicted of, of, of a police uh, murder. Uh, do you think that your, your involvement in the Black Panther Party was the reason why you were convicted of this, as opposed to concrete evidence that you had anything to do with this? Well, possibly. Probably. I have uh, numerous FBI files that I received through the Freedom of Information and Privacy Act that says right on the face of them that my case was targeted specifically by the then, uh, you know, ahead of the FBI, my case, uh, I was mentioned by name. I have at least close to 800, 800 pages of these files, and I could probably get thousands of pages, but I was not ever allowed access to them without the money, and I don't have the money to buy them. But I can see crystal clear by the files that I got that I was absolutely targeted by the Department of Justice through its Federal Bureau of Investigation Director to give specific hands-on direction as to what should be done with my case. So the reason I say possibly is because I don't know just what all was done in relationship to my case and what, you know, my defense that I put forth. I don't know because I don't have access to any documents. But what I do have is people who, in other words, I don't have any federal charges, period. I never did have any federal charges. However, 
FBI. He got involved, of course, in my case because I was being sought on unlawful flight to avoid prosecution, which is a federal case. But as soon as I was captured, that was dropped. So nominally, there was not supposed to be any type of uh, federal input. Nevertheless, I got these files where it shows that the Federal Bureau of Investigation, through its director, was into my case all the way up to, I don't know how far it goes, but it goes beyond the point where I was arrested and I was being tried. So I don't know what's there. I don't know without that whether or not, you know, something well, is underneath the Are you familiar with, uh, with the Federal Bureau of Investigations program called uh, PRISAC, Prison Activist Program? Absolutely. Um, do you know that this was a national program in which they trained uh, state and local law enforcement correctional uh, officials in, into uh, how to deal with political activists such as yourself. Do you think that you were targeted under this price act while you were in uh, Pennsylvania custody? Pennsylvania? I couldn't say specific whether I was or not because I would have to have some documents to corroborate my ideas. But I do know this. I know that since the first day I've ever come in this system, outside of my attempting to liberate myself, and to go home by escape any other means, I have always been treated differently. As a and, and so you were in federal custody for a period of time? I was in the federal custody for close to a year and a half. So they allowed me into the general population, which I stayed, which is the first time I've been in the general population since 1983. You didn't have any trouble while you were in jail? I had absolutely no trouble at all. In fact, I was one of them so-called quote-unquote model prisoners, which meant that I went to school, I went to work, I'm minding my business. So this is basically the only time you've been in general population was when they tried to get rid of you out of the state system and send you to the feds, and the feds found out that they were uh, bamboozled by the yes. state, and they put you in general population, Correct. and then the state took you back. So as soon as I was returned, I was immediately put back into put back in the hole. My work and my school and my other adjustment record at the federal penitentiary, I was in the general population, and I collected all these things and I presented them when I returned to the institution as the center. But of course, they knew, they knew why they had sent me, so they wasn't really concerned with what I said when I come back. So I was locked up there. The only thing I was told is what I mentioned earlier, that look, we're building an institution for guys like you. And once that's built, you will be allowed to be in the you know, regular general population. That was 1991. So once I come up here in 1995, I come to find that was a sham also. Seems like you've been through uh, hell and back. You think that, um, you don't think that there's a campaign that's possible to change it, at the very minimum, change your prison status? Um, it is my firm conviction. First of all, have you ever bought a lawsuit or any type of legal action about your, uh, about your, about your status? I've been bringing legal actions for the last 20 years. In fact, within that time, I've become a pretty accomplished jailhouse lawyer. I constantly bring legal actions on my behalf and other people's behalf. But this never does anything in my case. It helps did. other people, but it never helps me. I'm being kept here for two basic reasons I truly believe. And those are, one of them is personal vindictiveness. I'm deemed as someone on the part of the prisoners because, as I stated, I've become a pretty accomplished jailhouse lawyer, not because I thought that this would ever have me released from the prison system, because I don't really think it will, but I've become a accomplished jailhouse lawyer 
recorded in 2011, and now this from the Abolitionist Law Center. Rest easy and in power, long live Russell Maroon. It is with overwhelming sadness we join our communities in sharing this news. Our beloved friend, comrade, mentor, client, and inspiration, Russell Maroon Schultz, transitioned from this life on earth today. After 49 years in prison, Maroon was finally released on October 26th. He passed away at his sister's home 52 days later surrounded by the love and care of his family. There are few words, if any, that will do justice in describing Maroon, the impact he's had on all of us, the giant, gigantic legacy he leaves behind. If you are reading this, chances are at some point you came in contact with Maroon, either directly or subliminally. Many projects in the struggle for black liberation and abolition can be traced back to him, the contemporary political prisoners' rights movement in Pennsylvania, beginning with him. Some of us were lucky enough to know Maroon personally, and for that, we are infinitely grateful. We commemorate him by carrying out his life's work, by reaffirming our commitments to see the dissolution of empire and advance absolute, unconditional liberation for black people everywhere. Maroon reminds us, history records the stories of multitudes who risked their lives to obtain or regain their freedom. 2012. We are grieving for Maroon. He has left us physically on this plane, but his spirit and visions live on in the movements he inspired and animated from a prison cell, the countless hearts and minds he filled with hope and wonder when so many of us felt lost and helpless, the iconic essays he wrote that will continue to galvanize future generations of young people in the struggle. In his own words, Rest easy, fighting Maroons. There are many now and to come who will derive inspiration from your valorous examples, inspiration that will arm their spirits to fight the good fight till victory or death, 1995. Rest easy and in power. Long live Russell Maroon Schultz. This has been the year of the political prisoner. We just got through with the international tribunal we charge genocide. And America, with 3Ks Inc., was found guilty on all counts. Too many of our California hunger strikers are still being caged. Free them all. Free the land. All power to the people. Get ready for Work Week with Steve Seltzer. <laughs> 